This is Parikhit Ghosh for Ideas for India. Today we are talking to the man in black, Devraj Ray, Julius Silber, Professor of Economics, NYU. So I thought I'll start with something which was a major shock to all of us uh, last year, the election of Donald Trump. So in explaining Trump, two sorts of views have come up, two broad views. One is that of identity, that it's a backlash against, you know, increasing diversification of America, racial diversification, etc. The other is this economic grievance that American workers have been hurt by globalization and Trump with his protectionist platforms appeal to them. So the answer to these questions is often all of the above, but that's a boring answer. So if you were to choose between these explanations, which would you uh, favor? Well, hi. Hi, everyone. No, I'm not going to choose, but I will combine the the two in a particular way. But before I say anything, I want to say that uh, this business about explaining Trump's success, I think, is, is a really peculiar exercise because very often things happen which had very low probability. This is one of them. And now in hindsight, oh, I knew it all along. I can explain it, I think, is, is a bit of a joke. So first, I should say that, you know, I think that Trump's election, despite all the obvious problems in the United States, like Brexit, I think is, is, is a surprise. I mean, much more of a surprise than Brexit. So, so in this case, yeah, for sure, there's obviously been an incredible increase, an upsurge in inequality in the United States, all starting from the 70s and going on up, right? That part of it is obvious, but it's unclear why that part of it would then translate into the particular types of sentiments that were expressed during the election period, right? This, is, this sort of boils down to actually a conversation that you and I have had uh, a while ago and something that I've written on, which is that why is it that in a country where the obvious divisions are along class lines or economic lines, why is it that the reactions to those divisions never take the form of class divisions but kind of go horizontally? You know, Tamil Sinhala violence, Hindu-Muslim violence, Serbs and Bosnians and so forth. I think this is another example of that. So we look at a huge number of disillusioned white males and females, I suppose, but possibly males at the beginning, you know, that a whole bunch of these are feel dispossessed, uh, disenfranchised. Their first instinct is to turn sideways and blame another group that appears to be competing against them for jobs. They don't think of while they might hate the elite, they don't think of the elite as their main competitors. So instead of seeing the long convoluted forces that are driving the rise of inequality, they are looking at the immediate scapegoat and therefore a demagogue which comes and highlights those scapegoats, you know, immigrants or implicit sneering divisions between blacks and whites hmm. is, is going to have a good chance of making it. So are you saying that that's totally false consciousness, that, that that has no basis in reality? So this this diagnosis of Trump, uh, that trade with China and uh, immigration to some extent, uh, has to do with the stagnating wages, the falling incomes and so on? Yeah, no, I'm, tra- I'm sure trade has something to do with it, even though we can come back to that question later. But mm. um, So let me give you an example and you can tell me whether it's false consciousness. Okay? So think of the following example. Suppose uh, a man and a woman are having a conversation and we are talking about whether there's discrimination against women. We both see the same things, right? We see wage information for men and women. We may not know exactly how able the man was or the woman was. and so You see a whole bunch of information. That's the world. We're trying to make sense out of it. 
Why is it that women systematically would be more prone to saying that there's discrimination than men, right? And I think that's a very interesting question, yeah. right? And so I have a little theory of that. My theory of that, and this is what you can call false cautious. My theory is that we all are interested in our own selves of self-esteem. So we all would like to make our background world as unfair for us as we can possibly make it. That will enhance our own sense of self-esteem given whatever we've achieved. Mm. Okay. So if I'm a man, I want my background world to look as, you know, perhaps even disadvantageous to men. Right? Now, there's lots of men who claim that there's reverse discrimination. So that whoever I am, I can see myself in a better light. So I don't know whether it's false consciousness or not, but this is one way of thinking about uh, about this reaction in the Trump case, right? People want their background world to look disadvantageous to them. And as a result, uh, an unemployed white man is going to say that these immigrants are coming in and taking our jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's very interesting. You know, people talk about American exceptionalism in, in various things, right? So in one way in which, you know, people may take the view that America is different from the other rich countries is this narrative of the American dream, that this is a land where you earn your uh, fortune and your fate. Right. Whereas I think in Europe, perhaps it will right. be more. There would be a greater recognition of randomness, the, lo- the role of randomness in life. So... Maybe the false consciousness is tied to this idea of American dream. You know, the narrative being that this is a country of opportunity, but somehow we haven't done very well in this country. So, you know, what went wrong? Now, one reaction could be to throw away the idea of an American dream, that the system isn't just to start with. The other is to find a scapegoat. Right. So the need for a scapegoat arises because of this uh, mythology of the American dream. Is that a way to put it? Well, yeah, obviously, if you have the American dream flying on a daily basis around your head, <laughs> then, you know, anybody who wants can make it. Oh, this person can make it. The newspapers are full of it. TV's full of it. Obviously, with the enormous selection biases that it entails, right? All the 999,000 out of 1 million people who are not making it are not getting reported. Then what do you do in a situation like that when you want in a desperate attempt to preserve your self-esteem? What you do is you find scapegoats or you or you find reasons for the world to be particularly unfair to you or whatever it is that you've achieved, you've achieved in the worst possible life. It's kind of interesting because a prediction of that is that you'd actually expect, in this case, uh, if you were to interview a poor white male now and ask him about mobility, he would probably give you a correct answer. And he, uh, he would probably tell you that U.S. mobility is extremely low. Again, using the, mm. the argument that I gave before. And that would be the correct answer because U.S. mobility is significantly lower than Western Europe. But he'll blame it on, on things like immigration. and, and yeah, that yeah, I mean, uh, Ideally, one would like to blame it on as many things as possible. Mm. And so if there's, a, if there's some you know, large orange man in a suit saying that, you know, blame <laughs> it on this, blame it on that, then, you know, you embrace, I, mean, I would embrace a person like that. Mm. So let me come to this question of, you know, what are the big uh, sort of causal factors behind this rise in inequality, which Piketty and others have documented. So trade, technology, automation, and Joe Stiglitz was talking about rising rents. So the idea being that, you know, there has been some sort of shift in policies, you know, repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, that sort of thing. So, so, you know, easier offshoring of profits. 
So that's that's a third. I would put that as a third category. So so once again, sort of very um, simple-minded question. The reason I ask the question is, you know, whether we pin the blame on globalization or right. on technology or right. on rents creates very different narratives and very right. different right. political right. forces. Yeah. So how do we rank them in terms of you know contribution to the rising inequality? Well, yeah, yeah. So trade is an obvious suspect. But there are some reasons to believe that traders cannot serve as uh, full or indeed a satisfactory explanation. So one, one reason is that a lot of non-traded goods, right, so wholesale or utilities, stuff like that, their sh- the share of labor has been falling in such sectors as well. Uh, these are non-traded. The other uh, reason is that, you know, if you think of what is famously known as the factor price e- equalization theorem, right, so if you're looking at poor countries and rich countries, you should see the opposite movement in factor shares for a poor country that you see in the rich country, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, whatever factor they have a comparative advantage in benefits, is it, it might hurt one country and benefit the other. You don't see it. You see, you see a declining labor share everywhere. You see large declines in labor share in China and India. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so trade, you know, while it's, while it's an easy suspect, is probably not the one. I would subscribe more to to the view of technology. And so uh, what what I would say is that, you know, and it's not really technology of the future, but the technology that exists today. So what's, what's astonishing about something like machine learning is that you need a large capacious piece of hardware and you need the rules of something. Feed this large piece of hardware the rules, and shut it up in a room for a few hours, come back, and it's turned into a fairly sentient character. Right, like a chess player or a go player, um, or perhaps a call center assistant. Mm. So, the technology exists and it is extremely versatile. Of course, it's costly to implement it in any any particular situation. Right, and my view of this is that as time goes by and as the world on the whole gets richer then what will happen is that there will be an increasing need to displace labor a progressive need to displace labor. So this is my overall view. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not anything in the short run, labor cannot stagnate and so forth. But in the long run, there is this irrevocable tendency for labor to gain in terms of its price relative to capital. And in order to, in order to combat that, we are constantly implementing new technologies to push labor out. The interaction between the two is a complicated process because occasionally wages will fall as the push-out happens. But later, wages must have to rise in order to facilitate and incentivize the next round of replacement of labor, right? So so it's complex. Uh, but but I think that's at the heart. Now, there are other views of why why this has happened. I could talk about it, but if you want to move on, we can. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, in connection to what you just said, could you talk a little bit about this more normal notion of singularity that uh, you were discussing in your talk? Sure. So, you know, um, think of, you know, think of there being two fairly abstract inputs in production, let's call them capital and labor, and think of a of a third input, which we will concretize just for the sake of this conversation. Let's call them robots. They could be hardware robots or software robots. Now, think of this third input as something that's produced by capital and labor. It sits, kind of sits in the middle, as it were, between these two extremes. Now, 
we just agreed in our previous conversation that as capital gets more and more plentiful relative to labor, the price of labor will go up. Now, this guy in the middle, robots, what's going to happen to the price of robots relative to labor? And the answer to that depends on whether labor is a more needed input in the production of robots or capital is a more needed input in the production of robots. The price of robots will be somehow in the middle of these two things, right? Now, the von Neumann singularity refers to a situation in which the production of robots is liberated from labor. And you can, to paraphrase Piero Straffa, you can produce robots by means of robots and capital, right? Once you do that, the price of labor is, uh, is, and the price of robots start to diverge, and the price of robots follows the price of capital. And therefore, the fundamental singularity, which is this liberation from labor, is the one that will then get to swamp. We're going back to our earlier conversation about this progressive swamping of labor. That's the one that sets it off. That's the way I think about it. I'm not saying this is, by the way, a common and universally accepted way of thinking about automation, but it's it's the way that Dilip Mukherjee and I, in our recent work, have been thinking about it. So, so the basic idea is that you know, once robots become self-replicating, they can take over all human tasks at at very low cost because once they're self-replicating, their price will uh, go towards uh, nothing. No, that's not exactly true. The price will not, not, it's not the case that once robots become self-replicating that they become infinitely cheap. And the reason is that there's still capital required to make robots, right? So that system is not entirely an explosive system. It's still limited by the overall availability of capital. But what is true is that the price of robots will be pinned down by the price of capital. And in the longer run, the price, price of, of capital. capital will become cheap relative to that of labor. Mm-hmm. But just the appearance of the singularity will not reduce the price of robots to zero. Yeah, not really. overnight. Not overnight, but it'll, it'll, go, it'll keep pace with capital. Right. So, so let me push you a little bit on the premise here, right? Which yeah. is that the underlying premise is a technological assumption, if you will, that uh, practically all human tasks, right, which have commercial value, which uh, create self-worth for people, uh, they can be replaced by robots, Right, that that's a that's a technological possibility. Maybe hundred robots instead of ten, but they can be replaced. Now this is being discussed these days, right? So I'll, I'll mention two little tidbits in this connection. One is this idea of Roger Penrose, the physicist, who says that you know humans are fundamentally different machines. Right, they are not silicon-based computers, but but whatever. I don't even understand the concepts there, but quantum machines and so on. So, so there may be things, I don't know, playing a flute or, or something, writing poetry, which is beyond robots. And then the question is, you know, how many of these refuges there are where we can flock as, as robots uh, replace us? Gary Kasparov recently, as you know, you know, we've been discussing this, has, has said, has taken a very sort of brighter view that, uh, that this is a blessing, not a curse, that, you know, these robots replacing us will basically release us from drudgery. So it will liberate us, you know, sort of uh, put us in touch with our whatever creative selves. So could you talk a little bit about the plausibility of the premise? I mean, I think it's an interesting exercise anyway. We are all gazing into crystal balls. So what would happen if your premise is true remains an interesting question. But to what extent do you believe in that premise that everything can be replaced? Right. So that, that's a very interesting question. Let me give you the answer in different degrees, right? So the first level at which I'll give the answer is a very weak level, which is that 
Let's suppose that, I don't know, 10% of all conceivable tasks can't be automated. Then the statement that I made a little bit earlier can be just translated into saying that the remainder will be automated, the 10% will be our refuge, and one can then compute a limit share for capital and labor. Right. Okay, let's leave out that uninteresting case. No, actually, let me just okay, just, sure. just 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 yeah, uh, yeah. for a moment try to clarify something about. Do you have an idea of how, for want of a better term, how much is the elasticity? So, if I go from no refuge at all, and as I start creating a few activities where we can flock without being uh, driven out, what will that do to these uh, limiting theorems that you have? That you know. Uh, that the price of capital will go to zero. How much is it arrested? I mean, how much of a refuge do we need? Right. That's that's a good question. The answer to that depends on the market demand for what you're calling the refuges. Mm. Right. So let's take a completely you know extreme example. Let's say poetry. Even though I might, we can have another conversation <laughs> about whether poetry uh, can be automated or not. But yeah. let's say poetry cannot be automated. Um, that, so that's a refuge. We can all become poets, which is which is cool. <laughs> very unlikely <laughs> for me, at least. <laughs> However, if the market demand for poets—not the social need for poets, but the market demand for poets—is close to zero, which it increasingly appears to be, right? Then this refuge will have no particular economic significance. There'll be people, a lot of people doing poetry, but it won't have any particular economic significance. Mm. So from this, from this rather silly example, <coughs> we can conclude that just by looking at the percentage of sectors which are refugeable, mm. we can't conclude anything yeah. about the share, right? But what we can do in a large enough economic model is combine the demand side properties, in other words, the demand, the market demand for those refuges, combine them with the number of such refuges, the production technology that we anticipate will remain in those refuges, and use these to provide a complex but nevertheless calculable formula for the share of capital, which, as we said before, will go to 100% mm. if the proportion of those refuges go to zero. But the share of capital go, could go to 100% for other reasons because it could go to 100%, for example, if we have no market demand for poetry right. or philosophy. Maybe philosophy can only be done by human beings. Mm. You know, there could be other more sort of darker, more dystopian views that one can have is where, you know, the fact that you own other human beings uh, gives you a kick that owning no robot can. So we may, in the... You know, unless we do something about what's happening, it's not inconceivable that 40 or 50 years down the line, people may again return to getting owned slavery. by other people. Not slavery was this akin to slavery, but slavery was for the for, for production. Mm. This would be for consumption of various forms. It could be, you know, and I don't mean sexual necessarily. I mean, you know, all sorts. You know, I own some humans mm. who will come and sing when I need them to sing. Use a human for cooking my food. You know, all sorts of things like that. I see. Yeah. Just, just the fact of, of an input being human right. could confer market value. I mean, in a lesser form, we have that. You know, we value handicrafts. Yeah, stuff. and then there are the more benign things like yeah, handicrafts and stuff like that. Mm. But let me bring you back to that premise of yours that, that almost everything can be... Ah, so that's the last... Mm. So just to summarize, this would have a three-part argument. First... 
how do we compute the share of capital if everything can't be automated? Secondly, you know, this question of uh, whether some standard activities can, just by their humanness, turn into a different activity. Right? And the third is if there, if there are things which, in principle, cannot be automated. And here, obviously, I cannot pretend to know the answer to that question, but it, you know, it because it depends on very deep notions of you know when you know you and I were talking about looking at a Dali mm -hmm. together, you know, what if we knew it was a perfect digitized version of a Dali? Yeah, I went to see the Salvatore Mundi, which got which got auctioned for four hundred fifty million dollars in New York. Mm -hmm. This Da Vinci, mm -hmm. and I stood before it for forty five minutes. You know, pretty awestruck, not because it was a very beautiful painting, but it was, you know, it, and I realized that 90% of the awe was thinking that Da Vinci touched this, Da Vinci touched yeah. that. I never got to see the Mona Lisa close up because there's a there's an unpassable crowd in front of it, right? Mm. But this time I was right in front. And I was thinking to what extent was my experience based on that rather than I was looking at, you know, a work of beauty which a perfect digital rep uh, reproduction could reproduce by definition, right? Yeah. Yeah, there are these kinds of adjustments possible, right? So chess, for example, I mean, the best chess playing machines are way better than the world champion right now. Right. right. But we have right. a thriving chess scene where, where people enjoy the games. It's like a 100 meter race, right? Yeah. You, know, you can get into your golf cart and be beat, you know, somebody running 100 meters, right? Right. Does it mean that a 100 meter race is not valuable? That's right. I mean, I cheetahs can run much faster than the yeah. Indians, but so, I mean, you know, we still have worked out to some yeah. Yeah. So equilibrium. Yeah. So there's some, some possibility of, of that uh, in a benign or a malign form, malign form being owning humans and so on. But notice that the only benign forms you can think of, or most of the benign forms that you can think of, are things that we derive aesthetic or emotional enjoyment from. Poetry, art, knowing that this piece of music was not composed by a computer, but by somebody who, was, who had lost his wife or whatever, you know, um, mm. there's some tragedy that infuses the music, the humanness of it. This is not stuff that can necessarily be commercialized. And there the other part of the refuge story awaits us, which is that you have to convert these refuges by the market demand for those right. things. Right. Yeah, so I mean, both aspects are, I think, important, right? Having a commercial refuge, things that you can Precisely. do which will, which will fetch some income and some value. Precisely. As well as finding things to do that will give meaning Precisely. to our lives. Uh, let me come to solutions with, you know, regardless of what the limit is, you know, I think we can all agree that uh, we are headed in a direction where there can be massive shifts in, in the structure of workforce, wages and so on. So, you know, there's this for the last, I don't know, 50 years, maybe post-war in Western societies, politics has been, you know, on the one hand, you have market fundamentalists, laissez-faire people, and the other side, Especially after the fall of communism and all, when radical sort of uh, models uh, became discredited a little bit, there's this Scandinavian welfare state was, was a model for many people on the left, right? The social democrats. And sometimes the discussion in America, for example, you know, healthcare reform, right? It seems like anchored to that, that, well, that's the ideal. We in the US don't have, uh, we have healthcare, universal healthcare missing. So, so let's bridge that gap. And that is often what the left sort of, uh, how it frames its position. Do you think it's, the left has to move beyond that and, and talk about things like universal basic income or 
you know what you have advocated the universal basic share is there a paradigm shift which is needed for for the political left in in the US the UK and so on i think so i mean i you know there well there are two ways to approach this i think uh, given my own belief that this is a process which is ongoing and may be upon us sooner than we think there are two ways to approach it one way is to realize that all of this stuff about rising capital share or declining labor share all pertains to inputs labor has a smaller share capital has a larger share but it doesn't matter if we all own capital if we all own capital then how does it matter whether you know capital or you know if you all own peanuts and peanuts command a good price there's there's no problem mm-hmm. right so one approach is for us to think deeply about how we can teach the next generation people who are even very young right how to save in ways that are reasonable rational not too risk taking perhaps but you know taking a certain amount of risk and hoping it will average out over time now one might ask but that is a silly thing to say because so many people are too poor to save right and i agree with that but i will also say something about the stock market something astonishing about the stock market which is that it's what i would call linear in the sense that anybody can scale the stock market down to a small microcosm and own it now even this is a bit of an exaggeration because you know you may not be able to buy arbitrarily small fractions of shares but even there there are well, index funds exactly those are the index funds and you know there are there websites that allow you to tailor your own index funds by buying fractions of a share but that is an astonishing thing i mean if you the more you think about this fundamental linearity of the stock market right and I'm, and i continue to say i'm not talking about the ultra poor people who are extremely poor but you know if you start from uh, especially in de- certainly in developed countries but even in developing countries there is this linearity means that we can do things in proportion to our own wealth yeah and i think it's important that you know children be taught this Uh, it's as important as kids in middle school learning about sex i think it's as important as that to learn about how to manage your financial life because we're all born with labor right but none of us is born with capital right i mean we are born with capital if our parents have it but mm-hmm. i'm saying none of us is kind of naturally born with capital and i think mm-hmm. the the so this is one route i'm sorry i took mm-hmm. so long about explaining that but mm-hmm. this is one route out which is the the personal route right mm-hmm. the other route out is that if we are not going to learn to do that for either for several behavioral reasons which we can have a chat about you know or go coming back to the problem of the ultra poor and so forth then the other route is for the state to provide us with a basic set of rights to the resources or the uh, the outputs of of the world where we live right now these rights are obviously not new you know even in the united the united states is probably a pioneer in these rights you know if you think of the alaska fund right mm-hmm. where uh, you know the resources harvested by alaska you know part of that is stored in the fund right or norway and so forth now the problem with this is okay so a couple of problems on this on the side of the right uh, the argument is that oh if you give hand out money to people they they won't work well if they won't work they won't work what's mm-hmm. the problem i don't see a problem Okay, I, mean, I can get very cantankerous about it, you know. But stepping back from that, why won't they work? We give handouts to the rich all the time, and they do seem to work. 
So why, for heaven's sake, would, would a poor person? Well, the parents give them handouts all the time. Parents give <laughs> you handouts. Uh, uh, this is a completely ridiculous mm. argument. Mm. But the problem on the on the left is that, or at least it is, perhaps this is my imagined problem on the left, but this is a problem that the left should think about, is that if we do agree to giving a handout or whatever, a certain amount of money, I, I won't, we shouldn't call it a handout, a certain amount of money, the world will keep on growing at its own stately pace. And what are we going to do? Are we going to go to parliament every five years to say, let's, oh, there's, time has passed. India's income is now 38% higher. Let's increase the handout. Are we going to have a perennial battle with, you know, varying administrations of different hues and political stripes each time we want to adjust this? And the answer is, to my mind, obviously no. Right Now, one answer to this is why not just index the handout so it keeps pace with inflation. That's fine with me, but I want to keep pace with a little bit more than inflation. I want to keep pace with inflation plus the real rate of growth that's occurring. So inflation w won't solve this problem. So as a result, I've, you know, I've argued and uh, my co-author and friend Carla Mona has also argued that we should be thinking in terms of uh, a universal basic share, which is that we enshrine in the form of a law that X percent of a country's resources or income should be given out as, as universal basic income, where X is a number to be debated about. X is a number which we could perhaps perennially or try to revise. But even if we don't revise it, X will continue to assure us that we are capturing a certain fraction of what is being produced in the world, mm. yeah, uh, rather than just an absolute number. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. I know you've had very innovative ideas about how we can perhaps use the stock market to implementing an, implement an X, so to speak. Uh, so the idea that you and I have talked about is, you know, whether we can dilute uh, existing shareholdings or new issues of shares where those issues would go into a universal basic fund, which is not based on oil mm. or on resources, but it's based on stock values. Which I think is a cool idea. Now, obviously, to implement this, the details would be would be complex, and uh, but very much worth talking about. Mm. So that is, I mean, uh, of course, even people who will buy into this principle of a universal basic income and then anchor to GDP, like you talk about, right, universal right. basic share, to to have it of at any size. I mean, in in absolute terms, in terms of UBI, people have done calculations, right? If right. for, for the U.S., if you uh, want to give 10,000 to every people, uh, what fraction of what, you know, it's like 10% of GDP or some, some pretty big number uh, right. that, that needs to be raised. And uh, since the problem is that, you know, capital and labor income shares have been moving around, which is creating this need. Right. So, so you have to have very intrusive forms of taxing capital, right? Or through either means, either to taxing the flow, the profits, or confiscating or right. creating sovereign wealth funds. Yeah. So I have uh, sort of two questions. First, let me ask you about the, uh, what do you think are the prospects of that? I mean, is it politically feasible anytime soon? Right. So, okay. So now we have to go back to our discussion about automation and all of that. Now, mm. remember that the age of robots is not entirely upon us, right? <laughs> it's still a few decades away. There are people, you know, we'll, lots of people will continue keep, to keep their jobs. Jobs will grow, perhaps slowly, but, you know, there will be, there will be some growth. So, this share, which I'm asking to be laid down today, 
may amount to very little in terms of income. You know, for, for India, for example, uh, you know, amount to perhaps a pittance of the order of maybe, a, you know, seven, eight thousand rupees a year or something like that. But it will grow. And things, as you know, uh, as well as I do, that compounding can work wonders, right? So mm. by the time 30 years rolls around, and if India, you know, can continue to grow at 5% a year, we are arrogating not 5% of all, not X percent of all labor income, but we are taking the whole lot. Mm. Okay, we are taking the whole lot. All the stuff that would otherwise have gone into rents and profits into the hands of the industrialists, we continue to guarantee that we keep X percent of that stuff. So you're saying start small, but sort of uh, exactly bring in start this idea make it. In fact, politically, the percentage idea looks reasonable on several counts. You can, you know. You can play with X. X is not a crazy, you know, it does not have to look like a crazy uh, number. You can use time. Time is still, you know, running out, but it's on our side still. So we have a couple of decades, so we can start small. And finally, the use of a, of a percentage is also important because it allows countries to compare with each other. Let's go back to, again, things that can scale up and down. We can't compare a universal basic income in Norway with a universal basic income in India. Yeah. But we can compare the X's. We can have a declaration which all countries subscribe to that X is going to be the share that we will award to all our citizens. Mm. Imagine trying to write that declaration in terms of numbers. So let me come to my last question and then we'll wrap up. You know, this this business of sort of um, taxing capital or, or creating... I, I, I like the term citizen's dividend, you know, for right, these right. concepts because it gives... I mean, you have, you and Kale, you have talked about it, right? right? right. This this sense of ownership right. in the economy, the set of economic policies. That's correct. So, so I think that uh, has a resonance of that. Now, uh, let me go back to this thing that you were talking about that, you know, uh, people should be given financial literacy so that they can, even if they have a small portfolio, they can, you know, let it grow the way right. a savvy investor does. And there's probably some of that, that, you know, people don't know how to manage their monies and that further pulls them down. But there's also this ideas that, you know, the first million is the hardest. And we have the idea of poverty traps, that if you are starting with a small amount of capital, then you are hit with, you know, sooner or later, a big shock, and then then you'll collapse back to a low-level equilibrium trap and so on. Now, so presumably there's some of that in the system that, you know, it's it's uh, if, you, if you start too small, you're very likely to remain small. Uh, now, with respect to Owning wealth, owning capital, that's why the inequalities are much larger than inequality of uh, incomes or inequality of consumption, right? Different order of magnitude. Now, let me take the case of, let's say, uh, slavery and African-Americans in India. At the time of emancipation, I, I think there was this discussion about 40 acres and a mule, that justice requires not only freedom for black people, but also compensation. Right? Because so that they can escape their poverty traps right. and they can, you know, yeah. be on the path. So that has even before this age of inequality, right? right? In, in, if, if we go back to 1975, right, this, this current bout hasn't started. Right. But all these problems are lurking underneath the societies. In India, it's the caste system, right? right. Huge inequalities existing right. because of historical injustices. Right. Which uh, the system hasn't corrected, even though the rules are nominally Fair, it seems, but people have been sucked in under the weight of history. Right. So, so maybe it's a good opportunity to re-examine that. Maybe this may even be a blessing in disguise that 
questions we didn't ask before about property rights, about wealth, about justice can be now discussed more honestly, more forcefully. Maybe this is this is a time to reset everything, redistribute wealth in a manner which was previously completely off the table. Right. But, you know, what can I say? Obviously, I'm in complete ethical agreement with you. I think, you know, it's what I talked about when I talked about financial literacy. Obviously, it does not take into account the uncertain shocks that can hit people, things that don't scale very easily with with. with downwards with wealth, right? And so uh, let me just say a little bit about that before I come to your your question per se. So I certainly don't mean that if we all give everybody financial literacy, that it will halt the inequality of wealth as it stands today. Inequality of wealth will have to grow a bit more. The reason it will have to grow a bit more is that people at the lower end won't be able to save the same percentage of their income. For various reasons, subsistence reasons, other others, and they will have to save their save it in a more conservative fashion, so as not to be exposed to shocks. Right. So as a result, the whatever distribution of wealth we have currently is going to have to grow for a while longer. But what financial literacy can achieve is that it can halt the process after that once people have all accumulated a certain amount of wealth. Right. There will be another wealth inequality, but it'll be stable. It'll be higher, but it'll be stable. Mm-hmm. But it won't be infinite, which is what's going to happen if we don't learn how to save and if there's no universal basic share, right? And so there's a difference, right? Now, all that said, we might say, man, that wealth inequality you're going to get is is still unacceptable. And as a result of that, we might want to redistribute, which is fine. But I fear that the politics of that one-time redistribution is going to be extremely problematic. So this is the part at which, you know, so everything that I've said in our discussion today has always been informed to some extent by the political limitations of what we can reasonably achieve. I don't think we can achieve something like a coordinated, large-scale capital tax. Because it will have to be coordinated not just within a country, but across countries. Mm. Because large capital is always mobile. Yeah. Okay, it was uh, a lot of fun having this discussion. So thank you very much. You're very welcome and hope we can do this again. Yes, of course. Informally as well as on tape. Yes. Yes.